Are you ready to take your intermittent fasting lifestyle to the next level? There's nothing better than community to help with that. In the Delay Don't Deny community, we all embrace the clean fast, and there's just the right support for you as you live your intermittent fasting lifestyle. You can connect directly with me in the Ask Jen group, and I'll answer all of your questions personally. If you're new to intermittent fasting or recommitting to the intermittent fasting lifestyle, join the 28-Day Fast Start group. After your fast start, join us for support in the first-year group. Need tips for long-term maintenance? We have a place for that. There are many more useful spaces beyond these, and you can interact in as many as you like. Visit jenstevens.com community to join us. An annual membership costs just over a dollar a week when you do the math. If you aren't ready to fully commit for a year, join for a month, and you can cancel at any time. If you know you'll want to stay forever, we also have a lifetime membership option available. IF is free. You don't need to join our community to fast. But if you're looking for support from a community of like-minded intermittent fasters, we're here for you at jenstevens.com community. That's jenstevens.com community. Achieving my long-term goals is more about creating healthy habits and less about quick fixes. And that's why I love both intermittent fasting and daily harvest. Tim Spector, a gut health expert and founder of Zoe, and Dr. B, gastroenterologist and author of Fiber Fueled, recommend that you aim for at least 30 unique plant foods per week. Daily Harvest helps make it easy. One of my favorite options is the sweet potato and wild rice hash harvest bowl. With Daily Harvest, I'm getting tons of plant-based options built on organic fruits and vegetables that are easy to prep and free of weird ingredients such as fillers, seed oils, and added sugars. Create healthy habits that last with Daily Harvest. For a limited time only, go to dailyharvest.com ifstories to get $30 off your first box plus free shipping. That's dailyharvest.com ifstories for $30 off your first box and free shipping. Daily harvest.com slash is stories. Welcome to Intermittent Fasting Stories. I'm your host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. I lost over 80 pounds thanks to intermittent fasting after learning how to delay my eating rather than deny myself the delicious foods I want to eat. Now, who's ready to hear an inspirational intermittent fasting story? That's why we're here. So let's get excited to talk to today's guest. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 114 of Intermittent Fasting Stories. Today, I'm here with a very special guest. It is Todd White. Todd lives in Yontville, California. And he is the founder and CEO of one of my favorite companies in the world, Dry Farm Wines. Welcome, Todd. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I've got lots to share with about fasting. Fasting is one of my favorite topics. I love it. Well, you were on my other podcast way back in 2017 with co-host Melanie Avalon, and we talked a lot about wine then and also about, of course, intermittent fasting. I guess I'm a slow learner, Todd, because... I heard you there in 2017. I tried Dry Farm Wines, but then I was like, I can find other wines that are just as good as Dry Farm Wines. <laughs> so, like, I have gone this whole journey of trying to, well, let me just tell you, 
no. There are no better wines than the ones that you source for Dry Farm Wine. So I've just, I'm a little mad, like I said, that it took me so long to come back around to it because I'm going through menopause now. I'm 50, trouble sleeping, wine quality absolutely matters, and I am back to Dry Farm Wines for good. Awesome. Welcome home. Well, thank you. I mean, I tried so hard. I was like, surely I can find something local. No, no, I cannot. You know, I can't sleep when I drink other wines, but I can sleep when I drink dry farm wines. We're going to get into all the reasons why. Well, we'll talk about that and why that's the case. And actually, there are quite a few imposters out there now because Mm -hmm. of our success. So there's some lookalikes that aren't really honest with people and not transparent. So we can talk about why these wines are so rare and treasured and why they make you feel good. Let's talk about fasting. Let's talk about fasting. But yeah, I do want to get back to the ones. I tried some of the imposters. I'm just going to be honest. (laughs) But even my husband agrees that dry farm wines are are where it's at. But let's talk about fasting. When did you start fasting and what brought you to it? I started fasting in conjunction with the beginning of my journey on the ketogenic diet. And that was maybe six years ago. And so for the first two and a half or three years, uh, when I was on a therapeutic ketogenic diet, which is very high in fat, very low in protein and carbohydrate, I was experimenting with therapeutic ketogenic because I was just sort of experimenting across the, the boundary of keto and blood testing and performance enhancement. Biohacking. So biohacking, if you will. Right. I'm not on a therapeutic ketogenic diet anymore, and I haven't been for probably about two years, maybe three. But I'm on what I would consider today to be a modified ketogenic diet, which is very similar to the Atkins diet. So a little less fat, a little higher carbohydrate, a little higher protein. But I don't need any refined carbs. Okay. No wheat products, no highly refined, you know, highly glycemic carbohydrate at, at any time. But how I got started on fasting was I began with the lean gains method or the 16-8 ratio, right, eating twice per day. And then I did that for a couple of years. I would usually eat around 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon if I remembered to eat. Sometimes I would forget to eat lunch. You know, I'd just get busy and forget. And that's very common for people who do the 16-8 method. You know, they just get busy and forget to eat because we rarely eat no modern abundant human eats because they're hungry, right? We eat. We eat because it's time, right? Well, it's time. It's a psychological trigger, right? It's emotional. We like eating. Eating is also one of the things that we can distract our busy mind with, right? So eating can be therapeutic to a busy mind. We can eat our emotions, if you will, right? And it's also a sedative. So when we eat, our body shuts back and shuts down, right, to digest food. And so it actually takes a lot of energy to eat or to digest the food. Like if I, today I've been eating once per day, one meal per day for the last three and a half years, perhaps. And I couldn't dream, I wouldn't dream of eating in the middle of the day. I mean, I would never go back. And fasting protocols work differently for different people right but for me i couldn't imagine eating in the middle of the day right just because how i feel after eating is kind of like i equate with sort of winding the day down like going to go to bed 
right? I mean, it's like I'm a hundred percent there. I'm the yeah. same way. I'm, you know, it's four after four p.m. here on the Eastern Standard Time, and I haven't opened my window yet. I'm still in the fasted state because you're right. We get sleepy, we get tired, we it's winding down time, right? It's also a tremendous distraction to your day. Mm-hmm figuring out what you're going to eat, where you're going to eat it, who you're going to eat it with, right? And so when I went to eating one meal per day, and I've eaten lunch twice in the last three years, both for social reasons, mm-hmm. and just because it was just too complicated or cumbersome to explain why I was not going to eat, right? right. But that's only happened twice. And, and both times, I just felt terrible, right? And so for me, there's no temptation to have a meal at all. Now, the first, I would say the first six weeks, the first month or six weeks when I went from twice a day meals to one time per day meal is, well, clinically, I used to say a, a once a day feeding, but it seemed to bother people that I would, I would call it the <laughs> feeding window, right? <laughs> like a rat, like right, you know, a exactly. rat in a lab, so yeah. I just say one meal per day. Right. But since I went to one meal per day, it took me a month or so, maybe six weeks to acclimate. Not that I was hungry, just like when you're on a ketogenic diet, you don't eat because you're hungry. Mm-hmm. You eat because you're bored or you want something to do or you happen to be a hedonist like me and you just like the pleasure of eating. Well, right? I'm a hedonist too, right? That draws us to the wine as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> as a hedonist, I seek pleasure. Right. And food is oftentimes pleasurable. I'm fortunate enough and lucky enough to live within walking distance of a dozen world-class restaurants because of the town I live in, which has one of the best-known restaurants in the world called the French Laundry that's located here. So I have the great fortune of both living in Northern California and in this tiny town where all these amazing restaurants and chefs are that I get to eat really super high quality food five minutes, a five minute walk from where I live. And so, you know, so for me, I take food very seriously. I've always taken food seriously. I'm, I'm in the wine business. I'm a taste expert, right? And so I spent my whole life, we publish a magazine called A Matter of Taste. I spent my whole life since I was a child on the chair next to my grandmother in the kitchen in the South. You know, I spent my whole life interested, obsessed with taste in food and wine, just taste in general. For people, that might be kind of strange that I only eat once per day, but the fact is that eating once per day has so many amazing benefits. There's just a brand new podcast out on Dr. Peter Atia. I don't know if you mm-hmm. follow Peter Atia, but he has a yeah. new podcast out this week on an expert on autophagy. Right. Cellular renewal. And so we know eating less and eating less often, and I believe controlling our blood sugar, right? So I believe that elevated blood sugar and the hyperproduction of insulin is the leading cause for most chronic illnesses. Me too. Yep. Hyperinsulinemia. Yeah, I have a new book. By the time this podcast comes out, it will have been out for a few months, but it's actually coming out this Tuesday, Fast, Feast, Repeat. And I talk about hyperinsulinemia in there and how so many of the modern diseases go back to chronically high insulin levels. Well, there's no question about it. The right. hormone that allowed us to survive as a species is now mm-hmm. killing us. Right. Yeah, because it's, it's it's always elevated because people are eating nonstop. Right. And so for me, the easiest way, much easier than being on a therapeutic ketogenic diet, the easiest way to control blood sugar is just not to eat at all. Right. 
And so for me, that's easier. It's easier for me just to eat one meal per day and to be another common question that I get about it because I talk about this quite often. I'm sure you get this question too. A common question I get is, do you get enough calories? And I'm like, (laughs) you know, actually my goal was to have fewer calories. So I'm not trying to eat more calories. We know that calorie restriction or CR as it's referred to in the fasting circles, we know that calorie restriction is one of the few proven methods to extend lifespan in organisms. Exactly. It hasn't been proven in humans, but it's been proven in worms and yeast and monkeys, mice and monkeys. And it also, you know, the other thing, when I look at people who fast, they also look substantially younger than they actually are. Right. And so, you know, I'm 60. Right. And so this people commonly think I'm in my 40s. Right. And And I can see you. We're recording. We can see each other, even though the audience won't be able to see. And I can vouch. (laughs) He absolutely does not look 60. I would not have guessed that. No. So it's boom. What about those? So so we were just flexing some (laughs) biceps there. But so anyway, here's what I tell people. The greatest biohack of all time is meditation for me. And number two is fasting. And when I went, this is my personal experience with it. And I'll, I, I will talk about, I've experimented with a number of different regimens in addition to my one meal per day and regularly do extended fasting. And one of the topics on this recent Peter Atia podcast is what is that I'm referencing? I just started listening to it. So I haven't gotten to this part of it yet, but you know, how do we determine the right dose of fasting? Right. Right. And I do a lot of experimentation with this, you know, whether it be a three day, a five day, seven day. For me, I think I get nearly the same benefit out of a full three day fast as I do a five day. Okay. So, I mean, I can feel the kind of pull on day two the most and then progressively into day three. And then by day four, it's kind of it's kind of like easy. Right. Okay. And so it's always easy. The the only difficult part about fasting is starting your fast. That's true. Right? A lot of people I'm talking yeah, about an extended fast. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The only difficult thing about fasting is starting because we have these mental constructs that prevent us from actually starting. Once we start, we get into day two, we're fine. Right. And day three and beyond is until you get way out. But I'm, I'm talking about, let's talk about a seven day window. You know, day three, four, five, all kind of feel the same to me. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm getting most of the benefit in the first three days. So right. generally my extended fast now lasts only three days. And how often do you do a fast like that? Well, I've experimented with doing them weekly. I've experimented with doing them monthly. So for a while, I would not eat on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and only eat Thursday through Sunday. That's a lot of fasting. I like particularly (laughs) eating over the weekend. Right. Right. Now, it's fair to note, when I do extended fasting, I don't drink wine. And I gave up caffeine as a part of an extended fast about a year ago. So I don't drink coffee either. So you never brought that back? I didn't. You know, I'll tell you why. For many years until about a year ago, I fasted with coffee mm-hmm. and there's some debate as to whether that's a real fast or not, but I, you know, but I, I fasted with coffee, no cream or sugar. I fast or with coffee. Yeah. Just black coffee. Mm-hmm. I felt I got the same benefit and caffeine is a hunger suppressant, but I decided, all right, I'm going to do water only. Okay. You know, it was a five day water only fast. 
my first memorable water only fast that just didn't have any caffeine and my withdrawal symptoms from the coffee were so radical that I decided I just couldn't go back to it. I did that myself in maybe 2015, early in my fasting. My history is I was obese. I was 210 pounds. I've lost over 80 pounds, right? And so I've, I've kept the weight off since 2014, 2015. But along the way, I tried to do a really long fast like that and also give up the coffee. And it was a terrible I mean, the pain was not just like a headache. It was all over your whole body, right? I was debilitated yeah. on day one. I think I was like, crying. <laughs> I actually, actually, now that I recall, I've t- completely forgot about this. I felt so bad mm-hmm. and was so debilitated. I didn't start my fast that day. Just from the caffeine. Yeah, I just went ahead and ate and drank some wine to right. feel better. Yeah. Now, I didn't have any caffeine the next day. Mm-hmm. I started the fast several days later, but for the next week, you know, I had withdrawals every single day, including headaches that gradually went, got better day after day. But the first day was so debilitating. I just thought, you know, I can't be dependent on this and this is not right. And I'm hoping, which is exactly what happened, I'm hoping that by getting off of caffeine, that I'm going to have a very steady state of energy throughout the day. And which is exactly what happened once I recovered from the withdrawals. Mm-hmm. And so there was no more kind of peaks and valleys that I was experiencing with caffeine. I was drinking like I was drinking a lot of coffee, like four cups a day. Yeah, I actually did stay off coffee for a while after that. Did a little coffee experiment of seeing what it was like without it. I have kind of an ADHD brain, though. And so caffeine actually smooths my brain out rather than hypes me up. So when I reintroduced it, I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's a different kind of thing for my brain. Yeah, I just it, it was just turned out for me to be just a, another game changer. Well, good. But yeah, I tell people, you know, that I think going to once a meal day was the single most important advancement in my wellness and in my biohacking than anything else I had done. I just felt so much better and maintaining my weight and sort of staying in the lean zone I want to stay in became super, super simple without having to be hyper compliant right. on a ketogenic diet. I mean, a ketogenic diet is basically fasting mimicking. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the ability to eat with minimal impact on your blood sugar because the higher the fat ratio, you know, meaning that modified ketogenic diet is, you know, 50, 60% fat. Therapeutic ketogenic diet will be 80% right. fat. Right. And so fat's going to do two things. A, it's not going to have much of any impact on your blood sugar, but it's also going to mitigate any other glycemic foods that you might consume. Fat and fiber both mitigate glycemic absorption. Right. So I prefer to eat once a day and be able to eat a little wider range of foods that I happen to like. French fries is a good example. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm the same way. Potatoes work really well for me. I do. I, I am not low carb. I'm actually more <laughs> high carb <laughs> than anything. And when I say that, I'm talking about real food carbs. You know, the ultra processed sure. foods are not best for any of us. You know, that doesn't no. mean I don't ever enjoy any of those. But I do eat a little bit of potato, but not enough that it kicks me out of ketosis. Okay, you're in ketosis all the time. You you stay in ketosis. Well, it'll range. I, I don't. I used to like compete with myself and others. You know, postings on social media or whatever about how how high my beta hydroxybutyrate was in my blood by posting you know a picture of a right. glucometer that has a ketone strip capability. 
And so, I mean, if, if you're going to be serious about experimenting with the ketogenic diet, if you're going to be serious about it, you want to understand it, you want to understand the impacts of your performance, your mental, mental cognition, your your weight loss, your energy levels. If you really want to get serious about that, the only way to do that is to do blood testing, right? Because then you can employ a quantification. You can say, okay, well, I feel optimal. Like for me, if I want to really be in performance zone, my optimal BHB would be between 1.5 and 2.2 millimolar. Okay. Now, I'm not at that level today. Today, I bounce between 0.5 and 0.1 or 0.1.1. I don't measure it often. There's no need for me to. Measuring is not pleasant. It's a finger prick. And if you do it a lot, your fingers get bruised. Mm -hmm. And they've got some breath meters out there, but none of them are accurate yet. I mean, the the gold standard, if you want to measure beta-hydroxybutyrate in your blood, is with a finger prick. So they're also the strips are quite expensive. So I don't test much anymore, but I used to test many times per day, and especially when I was doing experimentations, like how much French fries can I eat and actually right. be kicked out of my ketosis. Right? So if I eat French fries just by themselves, like you know, like a serving of French fries, it will definitely right. kick me out of ketosis. If I eat a smaller, more moderate amount along with protein and fats, right, and other very low glycemic carbohydrate, it doesn't have much of an impact on me. But if I eat potatoes just straight away, then you know, then then I'm going to see a spike. Something I've been wanting to do and haven't done, and is on my to-do list now, is to get the Dexcon continuous glucose monitor. Oh yeah, I was just going to ask you if you had done that. I'm dying to have one of those. I haven't, and it's really just been it's been on my list. And then COVID came along, and I just hadn't gotten to it. And Unfortunately, because I'm not diabetic, my insurance company won't pay for it. They're quite expensive. Exactly. If you could just like order it, we would do it. But you have to have a prescription, and yeah, and and then insurance doesn't reimburse for it. And I think they're about three thousand dollars, and so okay, no big deal. I'm going to do it anyway because it's the it's the final for me. It's the final step in really understanding blood sugar, seeing how that changes during the day. Yeah, you probably know, you may have interviewed Dr. Dominic Diagostino. He's the best known leading authority on ketosis Mm -hmm. and the ketogenic diet in the United States and around the world. Well, there are four very significant researchers or scientists in the ketogenic field, and he's one of the four. But he's the best known because he's been on Tim Ferriss' podcast a couple of times, and he was in Tools of Titans book with Tim and so on and so forth. Super smart guy, amazing, amazing endorses dry farm wines Mm -hmm. as keto friendly wine but the point i was going to make about him is just this week he had uh, a continuous glucose monitor implanted and he has been doing regular social posting and i didn't realize this but there are many activities including stressful activities that will cause a spike in your glucose Mm -hmm. and one of his highest spikes that he's reported on recently from activities was from driving to work. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so apparently cortisol or stress in some way causes an elevation in blood glucose. So it's going to be really interesting for me to get to experiment with all different types of food types, mm-hmm. timing, combination of food types, because you're going to get a real, a real live look. The other thing we know is that glucose and beta-hydroxybutyrate are inverted. Right. So the lower your blood glucose, the higher your BHB will be. 
the more ketones you're producing. But a measurement of ketones in the blood is not is not always an accurate look because you're one thing we don't know is just because your BHB is high, does that mean that you're not utilizing the available ketones or have you just utilized them through exercise or some other method and now they're lower but your brain is very efficient at burning them so there's a lot we still don't know but fasting has a lot of the same benefits as being on a ketogenic diet yep. and the other thing we don't know is because there's so many cofactors and no real way to isolate them in a control group study on any of this unless you were to do it with prisoners or unless you were to isolate people and lock them up Right? There's no way to monitor what they actually eat, when they eat, and the amount they eat, and so on and so forth. So we don't really know if it's, is it fasting, is it calorie restriction, is it ketones? We don't know what are causing these benefits. Is it a combination of all of the above? I would suspect it is. I think it's, I mean, it's the ketones. Our brain loves the ketones. It's the lower insulin. It's keeping our blood glucose steady. I think all those things work together. Autophagy. We all face stress in our daily lives. What if the answer to a better stress response is in one key nutrient? I'm talking about magnesium, and specifically, Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. This one-of-a-kind product is designed to reverse low levels of magnesium, which could have a positive effect on our stress response. But don't take my word for it. Here's a quote from a 2020 issue of the scientific journal Nutrients. Results suggest that stress could increase magnesium loss, causing a deficiency. And, in turn, magnesium deficiency could enhance the body's susceptibility to stress, resulting in a magnesium and stress vicious circle. I only recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress resilience and better sleep. Simply go to bioptimizers.com slash ifstories promo code IFSTORIES10 to get your magnesium breakthrough and find out this month's gift with purchase. That's bioptimizers.com slash IFSTORIES, promo code IFSTORIES10. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know what a fan I am of Dr. Tim Spector and the work he's doing with Zoe. I was first introduced to his work in 2015, and I've been following his research ever since. What I love most about the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is that they have weekly interviews with world-leading experts who explain how their latest research can benefit your health. Recently, I was thrilled to finally meet him face-to-face as we recorded an episode for the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, and this episode aired on on April 11th. We had a chance to talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study, and I had the opportunity to explain the clean fast to Jonathan, which may explain why he didn't enjoy his prior experiences with fasting. Search for Zoe Science and Nutrition on your podcast player or on YouTube to hear the latest episode, and don't forget to look for the April 11th episode to hear me, Tim, and Jonathan talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study. Yeah, I think so too, but the maddening thing about it, you know, is that you can't get the government to represent the truth on it. You know, we can't get Western medicine, we can't get traditional doctors to even understand it. You know, they don't know anything about nutrition, they don't know anything about fasting, they associate fasting with starving. Right. They're two very different things, right? And But we know fasting's been used for thousands of years as a treatment for wellness or a treatment for many illnesses. You know, the ketogenic diet was developed to treat epilepsy, seizures in children. And then when the drugs came along, you know, it was continued to be used in very, very limited trials for children who were drug resistant. 
but didn't really get any notable, you know, kind of news until about five years ago. Now today it's the number one, the ketogenic diet is the number one Google diet term today. Yeah. Five years ago, it was virtually unknown. When I started doing it, it was only known in the biohacking circles. That's true. I, I remember that too. And But intermittent fasting is actually something that more and more doctors are becoming in tune with since it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, December of 2019. That really helped get the word out there. A lot of doctors had their eyes open to how it could be beneficial to their patients in so many different ways. So that's a positive step. Yeah. You I think we, you and I, because of the right. circles that we are in, but the people that we follow on social, we probably see a lot more of it. And since we're known as the keto wine and the paleo wine and the healthy wine of choice, and we're endorsed by thousands of health leaders, and I've been on some very large podcasts. And so the people who follow me or I follow them, many of them are already into progressive, advanced wellness practices and they're fasting right probably most of them most of them are fasting i know tons of people who fast but i don't if, i think if you drop down into the the middle of houston or the middle of atlanta i don't think you'd find that many people fasting you, you know? might be surprised you don't know this about me well i run um facebook intermittent fasting support groups okay and we have four hundred thousand combined members from around the world oh wow in our Facebook support groups, yeah. So it's big. <laughs> People are, are fasting all over the place, and it's just becoming more and more mainstream when you're walking down the street. You know, I talk to people. I was a school teacher for 28 years. That's my background, elementary school teacher. Right. I have a doctorate in gifted education, but, you know, I talk to anybody all the time. And so when you talk to people on the street these days, they've heard of intermittent fasting. They know someone who's done it. Oh, I think people have heard of it. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people probably heard of it. I'm not sure how many of them actually have done it. Have done it, and or they think they did it. You know, they think they did it because they were, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the 16-8 is, I think, super easy to be compliant with. It is. I mean, I don't just skipping breakfast is, if you have any interest in fasting at all, that's super easy to do. Like you adjust to that really quickly. Yeah, my husband does that. He didn't need to lose weight. He just did it for the health benefits only. Sure. That that one's easy. When you go to one meal a day, that's a little bit more challenging. Not not because you're hungry, but again, because of the psychological adjustment. It's true. And that so really most it people is. people give up. Yeah, yeah. Most people give up before they get acclimated. You're right. right? You know, that, so, that's very, very true. You have to let your body adjust. Like, I couldn't get acclimated to going back. Like... I just couldn't even imagine it. Like I'm so emotionally opposed to it that it's not in any kind of challenge for me at all. Everybody I know who gets there, and not many people get there. You know, they just don't. Even even people I know, you know, very progressive health leaders who who write about fasting, who promote fasting, most of them are not eating once per day. Yeah. You know, and so it's people think it's quite radical until you live it. Yeah, until you live it, and then it's like... Um, well, you're episode 114, so you keep. I've talked to 113 people before you who, and a good number of them live the intermittent fasting one meal a day lifestyle. Well, it's also super, you're married, it's super easier, right? I mean, right. if your partner oh, yeah. is on board with your program, and then for most people... And I've talked about this many times. For most people, they work in offices. 
They have co-workers who are very unhealthy. And it's always somebody's birthday. Yeah. You know, it's always some celebration, cake, cookie, candies. Donuts. Donuts, pastries some vendor brings them over, along with a big gallon of orange juice, right? I mean, so we know that there's a, that fruit juices are particularly nasty. Right. And they so, go straight to your blood glucose. Boom. They do, and it, they contain both fructose and glucose, mm-hmm. and they go immediately. They're, it's really the only way that unprocessed sugar is ending up in your lower intestine. Most of it, if you just eat regular sugar, does, it has to be in a juice form. And uh, they now think this is where colon cancer is coming from. Ah, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard anything. that. That's interesting. Yeah. Peter Atia just did a podcast on this on this topic. I just for me, it's just super super important, and I, I just I could never go back. I just couldn't imagine. Now, what I was going to say about coworkers is that you know people are then ridiculed, you know, for being on for being different, and most people just don't have the stomach for it. They just you know they they if they're in these environments, it's very hard to be compliant. I remember when I worked in an office with regular people. Now I work in an office with a bunch of biohackers. Love it. But so I work with 40 other biohackers. So it's kind of like it's part of the culture of our company. But when I worked in a regular office six or seven years ago, before I started this journey, and I was low carb then. Yeah, I've been I've been low carb. I've been experimenting with the Atkins diet and low carb to keep lean. I would go on, come off, go on, come off, this kind of thing. And then eventually just became kind of lower carb over time. But even then when I was working in an office, you know, I'd go in to get a cup of coffee in the company kitchen and there's just always something to pick on. Right. Right. And it's super it's just hard. It's just sugar's addictive too. Yeah. You know, so it's just it's just kinda of hard. So it's really helpful if you're surrounded in an ecosystem that's going to be supportive of your health practices. That's right. So, you know, for the people that are listening that don't have supportive friends, you know, get a get a friend to join you. <laughs> you know, if you have a, a support yeah, system in place. Friends. Yeah, well, there you go. I can only imagine how much fun it is to work in an office with just full of biohackers. Well, that and people who love wine. Well, true. All right. So I might have to move to California and... <laughs> <laughs> Start it's, uh, another career. I live in this extreme bubble. Right. Right. Where right now we're not meeting. We're Zooming every morning. But normally we meet at 10 in the morning. So we protect everybody's morning for fitness or family or private meditation or for their practices. These are not people who get up at 930 to come in at 10. They're up at 5 or 530 or 6. And then they have their morning for their personal rituals but we meet at 10 and from 10 to 11 we meditate together i love that and so every day and even now on zoom we do we meditate together from 10 to 11 on zoom every day and so we don't actually start creating what we call working we don't start creating until after 11 in the morning and then we wrap up about five in the afternoon you know so we i just live in this bubble with these amazing people you know, hiring process is extremely, extremely detailed. It takes just over two months to go through our interview process, which is why it took us, you know, five years to, to collect 40 people. Right? <laughs> but they've got to just be some awesome people. I'm pleased to tell you that every single day I look into the Zoom or I'm in the room with these people, I work with 40 rock stars, right? I mean, there's not a, there's not a slacker in the crowd. 
And that's a pretty amazing thing. I've never had that before. It's always been, you know, 20% of the people need to go away mm-hmm. at any given yeah, time. Uh, yeah. Anyone who's worked in, in an office setting or a, as a school teacher. Well, or, it could be higher than that. But if, <laughs> right? if it's well run, it's 20%. <laughs> yeah, that makes right? sense. And, well, let's uh, let's talk about wine. Well, you know, we talked about fasting. Let's come and talk about some wine. So you're there in, in Napa, and most of your wines actually are European. We don't sell any domestic wines. Right. Tell us about that. There are no wines made in the United States that meet our mm-hmm. standards of purity. So let's start off at the top about what's wrong with the wine business. It's about secret lies and money. All right. And so the same thing that's happened in the wine business has happened in our food supply. What's happened is that there's been massive corporate consolidation fueled by greed and money. And so there's just a handful of people making most of all the wines you see. So when you go to the grocery store, all those rows of hundreds of thousands of bottles there are all primarily made by just a handful of people. Here's how that happens. The top three wine companies in the United States make 52% of all the wines. Wow. But they all have different names. We don't even realize that, right? Yeah. I'll cover that. And then the top 30 companies in the United States, top 30 wine companies, make over 70% of U.S. wines. So here's what you have. They're secret about that. Because they, they see these multi-billion dollar wine marketing conglomerates don't want you to know that. What they want you to believe is that when you pick up the bottle and you see a picture of a farmhouse or a chateau, they want you to believe that you're drinking from that little farmhouse. Right. The fact is you're drinking from massive wine factories located in Central California, where the use of additives and chemicals, both in farming as well as in winemaking, are abundant. Now, what do you mean additives in wine? Well, see the dirty dark secret of the wine business is that there are 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. 76. 76. That, all of what I'm telling you about the wine industry and their secrets, lies, and money is easily verifiable on a Google search. You can search FDA approved wine additives and you'll go right to the list. Right now, the wine industry doesn't want you to know about those additives. A handful of them are quite toxic. Yeah. And some of them are even natural in fairness. But a handful are quite toxic. Now, why don't they want you to know? They don't want you to know about these additives for the the reasons of their toxicity. So how they keep that a secret, or had kept it a secret, it's not as big a secret now as it used to be, but how they keep that a secret is that they spend millions of dollars in lobby money in Washington, D.C., keeping wine contents labels off of wine. There's no labels at all. Yeah, nothing. Ingredients. It's the only major food product without a contents label on it. They also have prevented nutritional information on it because they don't want you to know how much sugar's in it. So. And there's not supposed to be sugar in wine, right? Well, there is. So there is sugar in wine. It's quite common. But there's not supposed to be sugar in, in natural wine. Well, it depends. You can okay. just, but let's talk about natural wine for a second. Okay. Because it's a term that's very confusing to consumers. I'm the largest reseller and importer of natural wines in the world. 
Natural wine is a confusing term because I say, have you ever drank natural wine? People say, aren't all wines natural? Right. And for the reasons I just described to you, additives and chemicals in farming, no, they're not natural. There's one other other element that makes a wine not natural. So what is a natural wine? A natural wine, one, is always grown without chemicals, organically or biodynamically. And biodynamic farming is an advanced prescriptive form of organic farming. Okay. So it's either organic or, or biodynamic. It is fermented with wild native yeast. Now, what does that mean? Well, commercial wines are fermented with genetically modified, lab-cultured and grown yeast. Always. Natural wines are always fermented with wild indigenous yeast. What is a wild indigenous yeast? Wild indigenous yeast appear on the skin of every grape berry in the world at harvest. It's uh, it's a white waxy looking film that's on the surface of the fruit. It's actually yeast. And it was gathered through the, the air, naturally produced in the vineyard. So the yeast is indigenous to that vineyard. That is the only yeast used to make a natural wine. Now, why don't commercial wines use it? Because it's natural. It's temperamental. It's difficult to work with. And you can't make wine in large quantities because it's too unstable, right? And so that's why you use these commercial yeasts. And I also bet some of the stuff they spray on the crops probably would kill that yeast, right? I don't know the answer to that. Okay. The yeast is in every vineyard. Whether or not chemical farming impairs the yeast, I don't okay. know. All right. It seems to make good sense, but, but I don't know if that's true or okay. not. And then third, there are no additives in it, mm-hmm. right? That's the international understanding of what a natural wine is. Anybody in the natural wine world, and virtually anybody who knows much about wine, will know what natural wine means. There is no certification for natural wine, although Dry Farm Wines has a certification for wines, and we'll talk about that because okay. it goes it goes beyond just natural. France just announced about a month ago that they're going to be the first country to certify natural wines. And the understanding that I just told you will be basically the understanding that that governs the certification for natural wines. But the natural wine movement was growing so large in France that they were successful in getting a certification process put into place for it. Well, that sounds like a really positive step, right? It is a very positive step. We like to see labeling on wine for contents, nutritional information on wine, and also we'd like to see a certification for natural wines in the United States. Right. But Dry Farm Wines has a certification of its own. And in a dry farm wine certification, it must meet several other criteria. So number one, organic or biodynamically farmed, native yeast fermentation, additive free, irrigation free, or what we call dry farming. Which is where your name comes from. Explain why that's important. Well, dry farming is important for a number of reasons. So it saves billions of gallons of water per year, Mm -hmm. right? So irrigation is bad for the planet. It also produces a less healthy fruit, so the polyphenols, which are the compounds in in wines, particularly red wines, that impart health benefits. The most famous one's called resveratrol. And so the polyphenols are lower in irrigated fruit and also lower in industrial fruit. So non-organic fruit and irrigated fruit are lower in polyphenols. It's also bad for the vine. So an irrigated grapevine has a root structure that's about three feet in diameter and about three feet deep. 
An unirrigated grapevine will have a root structure that can span 40 feet in its search and struggle for moisture and nutrient. It's hardier. Yeah, an irrigated grapevine gets all of its nutrients from the surface because there's a little irrigation tube hanging just above the trunk that just drips down, right? And, and so the roots don't go anywhere to get their nourishment or their moisture. That makes sense. So it's all quite common sense, but so well, why would you irrigate then? Well, it comes down to money. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Right, so irrigated fruit is cheaper to farm. It's easier to farm. It results in a higher yield. That's what I was going to guess. Yield is the, the yield is the size of the cluster. And then it also results in heavier fruit. It might not surprise you when you fill fruit with water, it weighs more. Well, fruit sold by the ton. And it's not cheap talking about like five to ten thousand dollars a ton mm -hmm. right so the impact on the weight of the fruit is very substantial in the farming profits right also might not surprise you if you fertilize a grapevine you get a higher yield you get a more robust plant than what is grown naturally so dry farming we also our wines are sugar-free sugar-free has an official designation by the government in our wines, we do not allow, all wines must be less than one gram per liter. Now, at the serving level size, which is five ounces, to call a wine sugar-free, the government requires you to have less than 0.5, less than 0.5 grams per liter, right? We're less than one gram per liter in the whole bottle. Okay. Right. And so, I mean, we're way, way, way below the government standard for sugar-free. Okay. So why is it lower in alcohol? Why is it sugar-free? The final qualifier is that it's lower in alcohol. Okay. So we don't sell anything over 12.5% alcohol. And the reason for that is it surprises many people to hear the wine guy say this, but see, wine is a, alcohol is a dangerous neurotoxin. Mm -hmm. 
and it ruins millions of people's lives. And there's some people who shouldn't just should not drink alcohol. Yep. But we believe everybody should drink alcohol in moderation. And so what's the easiest way to get to moderation? Just to drink a lower alcohol product in the first place. Because see, me, my friends, people I work with, probably you, I don't have a glass of wine. I have several, right? And so the only way to get to a lower alcohol outcome is to start with lower alcohol in the first place, right? Alcohol is also, not only is it a dangerous neurotoxin, but it's also a domino drug. And what do I mean by that? So it's just like the dominoes falling over. The more alcohol you drink, the more likely you are to drink more. Mm-hmm. Right? So it pulls you in. And so again, the only way to drink and drink in some volume without getting a high dose of alcohol is to drink at a lower level. Most of the wines I drink, because I can select whatever wines I want, most of the wines I drink are between 9 and 11% alcohol. That's just the taste I like. It's friendly with food, and I can drink a lot of it without much of an impact. So what are your favorites? What are your favorite wines right now? I have a wine style. Personally, I only drink red wine. You're red. Okay. My husband prefers red. I prefer white. <laughs> yeah, I only drink red wine. I mean, as a general rule. All right. I taste wines. I taste white wines, you know, from time to time. I have a wine team that does all these tastings. and So... You know, I sometimes taste white wines for educational purposes or sparklings or rosés or orange wines or, you know, I experiment with things. But on day to day, it's red. I mean, I could go weeks without drinking uh, and never drink a white wine. Months Mm -hmm. sometimes. I'm just a red wine drinker. And then in red wine, I like a certain style. So my style is very, very light, very low alcohol. My favorite grape is called Pinot Denis. It's very difficult to get. We don't get much of it because it's just so little of it in the world. It's grown in central France, most of it. Ancestral grape, there's just not much of it left in the world. Your Nobody wines knows. definitely are lighter in taste than like, you know, the traditional wines. Yeah, like I, I have to tell you kind of a funny story. When I started back in getting the dry farm wines, I still had like a stash of non dry farm wine that I had to like get rid of. So I would pawn that off on my husband. Sure. And I would make him drink the non dry farm wines. I'd be like, this is your wine. But then he got to the point where he was like, well, no, I don't like this wine. So he could tell by the taste because your wines taste you can so taste much the lighter. Too. You can. You can taste them. You can taste the, I can smell mm-hmm. them. You can. I can smell the additives. It doesn't smell like real wine. Yeah. And I, and I, so, like I said, I didn't want to believe you. But no, you're, it's <laughs> true, though. It, it, it's extracted. And once you start drinking our wines for a while, you just can't go back. You can't. Yeah. And, do you know who JJ Virgin is? I do. We actually had her on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast in 2017. At our company, we have a term for it. It's called to get JJ'd. <laughs> so here, see, with JJ in the very, I met JJ early on, right? Because I was very, I was, you know, very active in podcast circles and very active in masterminds and health conferences. We're, we're the official wine for 140 health conferences last year, including all the big ones that you know, Bulletproof, Upgraded right. Labs, Paleo FX. Metabolic Health Summit, which you should go if you haven't been. That's Dominic D'Agostino's intermittent. It's a fasting and ketogenic conference. It's the most important one in the world. It's called the Metabolic Health Summit. Okay. It's in Los Angeles. You should look it up next I year. I will, yeah. It's an amazing conference. I think it's the best you know, blood sugar conference, if you will, because that's really what it all comes down to. It's really a ketogenic fasting conference, but it's super, super big names of people who are, who are active. But 
Anyway, so JJ, I met her, and JJ used to date this Napa Valley Ventner, right, who made this big, gigantic wine, like 15% alcohol and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so JJ had a particular preference for big, heavy, thick wine. And so I tried to get JJ to endorse our product. I wanted to be the wine for Mindshare, which we are. But at the time, she's like, you know, I just don't like your wines. They're just, I like big California cabs. That's just what I like. Your wines are lighter. I mean, they're nice, but, you know, I just miss my cab. That's just what I want. I was like, all right. So anyway, we, even after we became the official wine for JJ, she still say, you know, do you have anything, do you mean anything heavier? I was like, it's not really the style of our wines. (laughs) Because one of the things to know is that there are two things that are creating that kind of heaviness, if you will, that boldness. One is higher alcohol. Mm -hmm. So alcohol adds density to wine. And number two is what we call extraction. The amount of time that the wine spends on the skin, this is for red wines, right? So how red wines become red is not from the juice of the red grape, it's clear. How red wines become red is from contact with the skin after the juice is pressed. And it macerates. Mm-hmm. And that maceration period can be a couple of days to a couple of weeks, as long as you want, right? Depending upon the style of wine that you're making. And so these extractions, these longer macerations, make wine darker and bigger and bolder and richer, right? But they also make you feel bad. Right. And so we don't know exactly why, but. We just know that if you get away from drinking them and you try to drink them again, you can't drink them. You, it's right? true. I can't. I can't drink them now. Yeah. So JJ finally, because she was like, because she was a large influencer, we had been sending JJ wine, like you know, once a month or so, and then, and she in her travels apparently she'd not been home and she comes home and there's a bunch of wine there, right? And so. She starts drinking our, uh, she's told me this story, she starts drinking our wine because, you know, it's free. And right, it's and there. it's there. And so that went on for a few weeks, and then she tried to open one of her old bottles, and she's like, ooh, I can't drink this. And then she called me, and she's like, I just want you to know, you you know, kind of ruined my life. Like, <laughs> you know, I got all this wine I can't drink. It's I can't true. drink those wines anymore. They taste like cough syrup to me. They do. Drink. Yeah. So, but it took a long time to get her there. It was just this coincidence. Then we did the wine for her wedding. and Oh, know, I just, love it. But yeah, so it's the JJ effect. Once you start drinking these for long enough to really get away from, see, we get acclimated too. Our, our palate gets acclimated. So we're creatures of habit. So we like to think that we're a lot more adventurous in our eating and drinking than we are. Right? right? So most of us go to the same restaurants and order the same things over and over and over again. Right? And we tend to stick within a very narrow window. We like to think that we're very adventurous, but typically we're not. Typically we get in these, well, your palate does the same thing for wine. You start drinking one thing and then it's like, oh, that's what I want to drink. It's true. And then when you get away from it and you drink something that's healthier and better, Right then, you're like, oh, I can't go back to drinking that. You really, you can't go back to it. So, like, I will never be able to like go to a restaurant and have a glass of red wine that's just you know off the shelf from one of those top U.S. manufacturers because yeah, I just don't like them. Easier. 
Yeah. Yeah, white oh, wines think? are easier. Uh, white wines are easier, yeah. I don't think I could do a red. Yeah, they're a little easier because they don't they don't get this kind of extractions mm-hmm. that, that red wines get. And I could do like a French champagne, perhaps, you know, if I if I couldn't get a dry farm wine, certified wine, you know, maybe a French champagne. What do you think? Well, Here's what I tell people, and then you know I live in the heart of the Napa Valley. Right. You can imagine I'm, I don't get many social invites these days, <laughs> but fortunately I have enough friends without them. But you know what I tell people is that if you're going to order in a restaurant, then first of all, best to stick to Europe, right? And best to stick to France, right? Best to stick to Central France if you can, Beaujolais, Loire or any, any Eastern European company, mm-hmm. country. You won't see many of those wines on wine lists, but just look for cooler regions, right? And then if I go into a restaurant and have to order a bottle of wine, I don't know what I'm ordering. The first thing I'm gonna do is get the wine director or SOM, it's usually a wine director, not many places actually have SOMs anymore, unless it's super fine dining. But I'm gonna ask the wine director to help me find a low alcohol wine. And I define that as 12.5% or below. Okay. And so, if you're drinking a lower alcohol wine, the chances are mm-hmm. that it's going to be made in a style that's going to be healthy. That's a good tip. So Very good tip. But even though still, I'll tell you, there are many, 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 many restaurants that will not have a wine at 12 and a half or below. Uh-huh. They'll start at 13. Wow. So in my case, being in the wine business, you know, I, I travel with wine wherever I go. You take it with you, yeah. Yeah, and in California, it's super easy to... I mean, corkage is quite common here. It's mm-hmm. five to twenty-five dollars a bottle, or oftentimes in the Napa Valley, it's just free. Okay, right. And so, but you know, if wherever you live, you just simply call. There's a few states where it's not legal to bring your own alcohol into a restaurant, but not many. Most just don't know about it. So the best thing to do is if you're going to go out and you want to take a bottle of wine, just call the restaurant you're going to and ask them what their corkage fee is. We've done that before with a special bottle that we had, like on an anniversary. And some people might be embarrassed, but the restaurants are used to it. You know, you're their, you're their customer. Don't be embarrassed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most of the, you know, they, they, I mean, I've seen corkage as, as, as high as $100 a bottle, but that's people who are punitive and don't want you bringing wine in but won't don't want to stop right it. they'll you'll still right. be able to do it but they're going to make right. you pay I've for it seen wine. and then the french laundry which is near my home here is 75 dollars a bottle because they want to sell you wine they don't they want do. you bring it yeah. in. there's a lot of a lot of mark a lot of profit in those restaurant bottles of wine yeah but but most of the time it's five to fifteen dollars you know most of the time and, and and very frequently it's free you just have to ask well good now, that's sometimes they don't Sometimes you, they don't even they don't get asked often enough to even know the term. You know, yeah. if it's a young person, and you call up and you say, "What's your corkage?" They'll say, what? like, "What's They'll that? Say, what do you charge me to bring wine in? My own bottle of wine." You have to be very specific with them because they won't know what it means. So but, it's the additives. Those are that's why you know the extra alcohol, the additives, the sugar. That's why the regular wines don't work well for us. That's why I was having trouble sleeping. We don't know what the combination of factors are. Mm-hmm. We don't know if it's high degree of sulfur dioxide that's added as preserved. We don't. We don't know if it's sugar. I, I, sugar has a lot to do with it. Just anecdotally, you know, if you drink a shot of tequila, that's a very different experience than having a margarita, very which true. is full of sugar. Yep. Yeah, the you're way right. you feel, yeah, is very different. Mm-hmm. Good right? point. Alcohol and sugar just don't make happy playmates. Right. And so. We just did sugar testing on the top 20 best-selling wines in the United States just about two months ago. 
and only two of the 20 qualified for our sugar level. Wow. The other 18 were higher than we allow. Wow. Right. And so, you know, sugar can be present in wine and you can't taste it. Now, if it's a sweet wine or dessert wine, sure, that you're going to taste sugar. But sugar can be present at 5 to 10 grams a liter. You won't even taste it, right, because of the acidity level in sugar. Same reason in a soda, you know, you've got 32 grams of sugar, but you the only reason you can drink it is because it's got so much ascorbic acid in it, right? Oh, yeah. If you had 32 grams of sugar and, and 12 ounces of water, you couldn't drink it. No, that would be yucky. It'd be too sweet. So the only way you know, the only way we know is taste experts. The only way we know if a wine is sugar-free is to lab test it. Test it. All right. That's a good thing to note. Let me ask you a question about sulfites. One of my group members asked me about this. They're like, well, you know, we know that we don't want added sulfites, but yet, you know, your wine is not, quote, sulfite-free because... No wine sulfi- is. Right. That, could you explain why no wine is sulfite-free? Yeah, so sulfites are naturally occurring in any fermented product and many other food products as well. But any fermented product, kombucha, sauerkraut, pickles, any kind of fermented product is going to naturally have naturally occurring from fermentation. Yeah, the question is, and, uh, and other foods have sulfites in them as well, but the question is, how much sulfite? And so the U.S. limit for sulfur in wines is 350 parts per million. Our wines average 39 parts per million. Yeah, that's a lot lower than 350. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and so the question is, how much sulfur dioxide was added to the wine? And so that's the question. Was it added small amount, a tiny amount to stabilize the wine, a medium dose to preserve the wine, or a high dose, as is the case in commercial wines, to sterilize the wine and to McDonaldize it, to make every bottle taste the same? So we don't want our wine to be sterilized, right? I bet there, there's some benefits, like like in a kombucha. Right. We want living bacteria that's friendly to the micro-gut biome. And, you know, some of your wines are actually cloudy. and, and yeah, that's a, because they've not been filtered. They've right. not been sterile filtered. But that's a good thing. It is. Those particles are, are, are living things, right? And they also add to the texture. Yeah. It's kind of like I, when I describe the, the texture of a natural wine that's not filtered. It's sort of, I'd like to think of it as like, if you drink a drip coffee, mm-hmm. right, that's been filtered, that's very different than the texture of a French press coffee. Right. Right. Which has particles in it. I mean, you can't see them. I mean, they're tiny. They're not big enough to taste the, the edge of them, but they add, they add a texture to the coffee mm-hmm. at French press that you don't get from a drip coffee. That drip makes coffee's sense. Drip coffee super clean. Yeah. Right. Because it's been filtered. Our wines are not filtered. Okay. Yeah. And, and yeah, that is something that at first you're like, ooh, this is different. But then just like we're going to get JJ virgined, we're going <laughs> to. Yeah, exactly. We're you gonna... get JJ and then you just don't go back. And then you think that difference is actually pretty tasty. It is. Right? And then, and then you really just you taste another wine and you're like trying to pawn it off on your husband because you, you only want the good stuff. Nice. Like, sorry, honey, you have to have this wine. I'm drinking the good stuff. So speaking of getting the good stuff. Yeah. I know we got to wrap we up. We do. But I want to extend an, an offer to your audience today. And and if they go to dryfarmwines.com slash IF stories, that's dryfarmwines.com slash IF stories, they can get a penny bottle in yeah, their first order. So it is dry D R Y Farm Wines with an S dot com forward slash IF stories. And I'll have this linked well, in the show the show description. Nice, nice. Listen, thanks for having me on today. I love always love talking about wine 
and fasting, two of my favorite topics. As we're winding up, what was the one thing you would tell someone just starting off with intermittent fasting? Well, I mean, certainly a common hack is to drink caffeine, which I don't drink, but, but I think caffeine is useful. Drink a lot of water, you know, so if you get hungry, have a glass of water. You, you're not really hungry, you're hangry. There you go. You know, and, and until you get past that, you know, till you get adjusted past that, which doesn't take long, it takes about a week. It's, it's about a week. The first five days are going to be the toughest. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's just kind of easy breeze. I think drinking water is the, is the thing. Yeah, absolutely. The water is very helpful. Thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing all of the fasting knowledge and all the knowledge about the wine. Nice. Had a great time. Thanks for having me. And I will toast you tonight with my wine. Do you have an intermittent fasting story to tell? Email me at jen at intermittentfastingstories.com and I'll add you to the lineup. That's G-I-N at intermittentfastingstories.com. The world wants to hear your story. That's it for today. Remember, I may have a doctorate, but I'm not a medical doctor. So don't use anything you hear on this podcast as a substitute for medical advice. Please always check with your doctor or healthcare provider if you have medical questions. I'll talk to you next week, Fasting Family, where we will hear another inspiring story. Have a great week and fast on. Intermittent Fasting Stories is edited, mixed, and mastered by Resonate Recordings. To learn more, visit them at ResonateRecordings.com or email them at hello at ResonateRecordings.com. Intermittent Fasting Stories listeners will receive a free offer if you mention that you heard it on the podcast.